I wanted to finish with one last question. I should have opened with this. Who the hell is Ben Appel? Who the hell is Ben Appel? Um, you know, I, I don't know what else I can say besides everything that I said. I feel like I just really indulged, divulged a lot of my own personal life to you, but I'm a writer. I'm a husband. Um, I'm a New Yorker now. Mm. Um, I am, that's what I am really. And I'm a free thinker. Hey. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Nice to meet you. Glad to meet you as well. You have a very fish eye lens there going on. I know. It's a, um, uh, like a, just a camera that's right above my computer. Yeah. Is yeah. it distracting? No. No, I just noticed these things being a, uh, unintended, uh, cinematographer now. I just noticed yeah. these shots. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, really, absolutely. I'm excited to be here. I, I have been following your work for a very long time, and so it's exciting. I uh, congratulate thee for uh, this article making some waves, getting shared by some big accounts. Thanks. How does it feel? Are, are you finally like you got like that kind of fame vibe going on? Are you dancing, uh, singing, bursting out into song? Like, no, you, not gay, necessarily. You gay folk do that, don't you? We do. That's what we're known for. It. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I'm just glad that people are reading it um, and just contending with <clears throat> the argument and the ideas that I put forth. You know, so that's really what's important to me. Mm-hmm. And you know, obviously, it's thrilling to have the support of people who have big platforms. That was. Um, it is, it's surreal, you know, it certainly is surreal and, um, you know, it's really appreciated and I'm definitely thrilled by it for sure. Are you under any, uh, do you have any stress or anxiety about possible like career implications for this? Cause some people in uh-huh. your situation do. Yeah, absolutely. How are you managing that? Uh, do you have cancel insurance? I don't have cancel insurance. I, I need to start that company. It, it would be a booming business, I'm sure. It would be a booming business. But, you know, I just keep telling myself I've been through worse. I, you know, I've been through hell and back. And so um, I guess when you kind of grew up uh, under the thumb of, you know, an ideology and moved from ideology to ideology and kind of uh, accepted the reigning dogma and you kind of come out from under that, like the rejecting of, of dogmas is destabilizing for people. And so, um, you know, if that's what my project is and it gets me into trouble, I know what the other side is like which is incredibly stifling and, and sort of intellectual imprisonment that I'm not um, keen on anymore. Mm. What was your original, um, your, your beginning ideology? So I had a similar upbringing as you. I think I heard you on maybe it was the 
um, Gender a Wider Lens podcast, or I don't know, Megan Dom shared it with me um, because of your religious upbringing. And I had a fundamentalist religious upbringing. Um, it was called a covenant community that my, my family was a part of. Um, uh, it was like, a, uh, are you familiar with the charismatic uh, renewal movement? that um, was kind of a quirky blend of Catholicism and Pentecostalism that really took off in the late 60s and 70s. So that was what I grew up in. And, and uh, the out of something called a Crescillo movement, there was um, uh, a movement um, uh, called Covenant Communities, which was like this return to really traditional tight-knit sort of cloistered uh, communities where everybody kind of declared fealty to to religious leaders and lived according to really rigid um and kind of old testament uh gender roles um wait did you say and so christ zillow is that like a lizard jesus no cursillo cursillo movement c-u-r-s-i-l-l-o and i think it was out of actually uh maybe somewhere in central or south america that this um you know leader of this movement in the u.s first kind of stumbled upon it and then he developed it in like out of ann arbor michigan um and steve clark was his name and ralph martin were two guys um you know people of praise which amy coney barrett is a member of uh or that's a covenant community okay um and so um it's still a it's still a it's still a movement and it's global um and the covenant community that my family belonged to was called the lamb of god and it was just outside of baltimore in a suburban area where all the families lived in the same neighborhoods and um all the kids went to the same tiny school and there were leaders and and the 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 men who led were coordinators and the females who led were called handmaids and uh then there were district heads beneath that and it was this this you know hierarchy that operated um to really kind of control through purity policing and and groupthink and and stuff like that and so when my my parents joined it uh in the 70s before they got married in 76 and at the time it was just this kind of like revivalist you know reformed hippies coming out of the post you know drug haze of the 60s um, we found Jesus and we're here to spread love and mercy and, and, and the message of God's forgiveness and, and et cetera. And that's what really attracted to my mother to it. And then the leader got hooked up with these two men in Ann Arbor and really applied all of their um, principles to the community and it became a covenant community. And then it lasted for a number of years, um, but then it went under investigation by the Catholic Archdiocese in the 90s um, because of ex-members that came forward professing that they were practice, you know, cult-like practices for teaching things that were essentially heretical to the church because they were kind of swaying people away from from the church and taking them under. Like this is this is they were they were kind of they really believed that the church was being degraded and it was it was um you know with with modern feminism and 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 post-60s you know radical liberalism and so um it really confused a lot of people and uh and and a lot of people came forward and of course there was money involved too and allegations of sexual abuse 
um, some very credible, you know, by, by certain people. And, um, and it really fell apart around that time. And my mother who, you know, tried to, my father became one of the leaders, mm-hmm. um, not because he was super, uh, religious, um, but because he was this kind of accomplished or relatively accomplished, you know, middle-class lawyer that had some business acumen and, and the leaders really thought that they, he could help you know, attract new members and really help with the organization of it. It was almost like a startup where he became like the school superintendent and he taught geography and he, and then, um, and my mother, and, and of course, as they adopted these, you know, men are the, are the, are the husband master and women's are, are submissive to the men. My mother grew more resentful of that over the years. Um, and, and finally we left when I was 12. Uh, your father and mother left together? Correct. Yes. Yes. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. So somehow this, uh, this movement attached itself to Catholicism and Catholicism, uh, allowed it for a certain time. Like maybe they saw it. I'm just guessing here. They saw it as, okay, well, it's kind of giving access to this new generation to Catholic principles. So we're going to allow this, but it kind of metastasized or it turned out to be, uh, it's interesting that the Catholic Church still had authority over it somehow, and yet they had reign to do what they wanted at the same time. Right, and so so it did start with Catholics, and so these folks were Catholics that at least started this this community that I was a part of, and I and I suppose it was a broader Catholic movement because um, it was the Catholic Charismatic Renewal movement, but. As the result of this investigation with the archdiocese was that there was a Catholic priest who was one of the five coordinators, one of the leaders that was acted as the liaison between the Catholic Church and the community. And they the result was they had to, if they wanted to keep us. Well, actually, there were taxation purposes, of course, too, because they wanted to be able to remain affiliated with the church to have tax exemptions and so on, as far as I know. But what they what they needed to do was as a result of that investigation was if they wanted to keep this priest as a liaison and, and to be connected to the church in some way, then they were going to have to undergo kind of almost like a new elector, election process where the, the where there had to be a more of a, a, a democracy to it and, and, and a, um, a rotation of leadership in the community. And that's what ended up happening. And the leader ended up leaving and went on to do other things. Okay. Um, and that's when it really started to disintegrate. But the school's still there. The school remains. It's just, it's interesting. I'm trying to imagine what the, uh, what the church service itself would be based on. Is it just kind of like readapting the Latin mass to like janky little guitars and ukuleles and a cymbal or something? Right. So it wasn't a Latin mass because members still did go to Catholic church, but there were prayer meetings each week. I think on Thursdays was Thursday nights was the main prayer meeting. And then everybody would have their own smaller groups in households, uh, like mostly se- typically segregated by sex. And so, mm-hmm. Um, the prayer meetings were a very Pentecostal in their laying on of hands, speaking in tongues, and prophesying. So that was different. There was no there was no Latin mass. It was you know generally by the leader uh, a sermon about perhaps a scripture, and then um, you know folks who were kind of pre-approved would get up and say, "I feel the Lord is telling me to say you know et cetera et cetera." And then of course there was praise and worship and speaking in tongues and stuff like that. Okay. Um, that, that was, that was the custom. And so how was your mind processing this? So you left when you were 12. So this is a very 
large part of your life and the very yeah. very central you know it's like that's the beginning of your consciousness and and just your bearings on the world so what was your perception of uh the mixture of these kind of different traditions this hippieism and then this authority structure and then the catholicism too well it was all i knew so i you know i did grow up in it i was you know born into it um and so at the school was where we were were influenced you know i do have vague recollections of these prayer meetings um a lot of times the younger kids were had their own separate meetings with like down the hall from the main prayer meeting um but and you know there were camps and youth groups and everything organized by this community and um but the school was where the you know every day there was you know prayer and worship um and it did become quite sensational um laying on of hands kids all of us laying on hands on each other you know praying and eventually crying um and you know speaking prophecy or or whatever and trembling and um and things like that so it was and of course i was you know so i was indoctrinated with all of these ideas too about homosexuality and about um you know kind of i mean i'm sure that a lot of what they they taught and followed was really um you know would be jerry falwell you know rush limbaugh anita bryan approved um because this was around the time of like you know well post 70s anita bryant save our children campaign and then of course the religious right and the and the christian um the christian right and the moral majority and the rise of that in the 80s so i guess that's kind of like a good um you know example for people who know about those things to kind of understand um you know we were going to i was going to right to life marches when i was nine and things like that and and so there was a i guess a political element to it but it was more like modern secularism humanism you know there were these four horsemen i think they were islam feminism uh modern humanism and uh some sort of some some other ideology that was yeah that was uh you know what what our job as good christian soldiers um was to to fight against so so i it was all i knew and and you know the real kind of trauma came after we left because our our leaving was so abrupt once they knew that members were having some dissatisfaction and thinking about leaving they would push them out and so that's what happened to our to my parents um my they were having a lot of issues in their marriage and eventually um my mom said that's it we're leaving and we moved to a new area which wasn't far about a 20 20 minute drive away but just an entirely new world and so essentially all the ties were severed with people in the community because of course they were encouraged not to really keep ties with people that even were outside of the community even if they were in the same family there was a lot of um discouragement of that so i you know went from in my sixth grade year being completely cloistered in in this and and having grown up with my classmates there were four of us total um who i had known since infancy essentially and all of my teacher mentors who were kind of my channels to god um and who prayed over me and who redeemed me and who shamed me when i did something wrong and taught me the gravity of my sins and then would bestow salvation upon me i was taken away all of that but from all of that in in a summer or very abruptly and then we were placed in 
you know, this new neighborhood. Um, and I went to public school, um, obviously a secular public school, a huge school. Um, and I was very effeminate, very gender nonconforming. And in the Lamb of God, I didn't realize how different I was because there wasn't necessarily an in crowd. There was no, it was all just about, now I did get messaging from people who caught on in retrospect to my gender nonconformity and were wary or suspicious of me or discouraged me or perhaps reserved specific messaging or lessons for me to, uh, you know, if they saw within me this kind of budding homosexuality and this budding evil or or deviancy, and so um, that was programmed into me. But otherwise, with my peers, there wasn't. You know, you're a girl or a boy, but it, that started like the first week that I went to my new school. Oh wow! So, and then um, right away, my parents split up that year. So it was like a it was very chaotic and destabilizing. Okay. Um, during that time. So that was really where the the, the difficulty came in. Okay. With, with so there's your, this weird yeah. kind of, there's this weird kind of dissonance between having really fond memories of being in the community. And then also from an adult perspective, looking back and seeing where, you know, when you're programmed with an ideology, when it's kind of written upon you, how that, and then sent out into the world, which uh where you know either it contradicts or doesn't align with reality and common reality or with your own inherent humanity it's hard to to navigate that and so i do look it back on the time that i was in there as spiritual abuse but um but at the time, I was a happy kid, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. How big was your family? How many siblings? I have three siblings. Okay. And uh, yeah. uh, this is kind of random, but where in the order are you? Third. Okay. I have two older sisters, and then me, and then my younger brother. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot of change to go through when you're 12. So you're on the precipice of puberty. <laughs> so right. the hormones are already ramping up. And then you have to completely, um, I guess you have to rewrite your relationship with reality. Probably not something that you necessarily are able to do. But your parents are doing that, too, because they were enmeshed in, a, in this ideology that demanded adherence. And now they have to kind of rewrite their, you know, the code that, that they read the world with and how they connect to society. Um, and then your parents also splitting up too. That's a lot of, this is a lot of stress at a very, uh, you know, vulnerable age and then being thrust into public school, um, and having to navigate like a much more diverse society. So you don't seem totally messed up, but maybe I'm reading you wrong. So how did you, uh, navigate that and, um, gain stability? Over the course of well, there, I've had a lot of years between then and now, and I, I, I certainly was. I, so my my coping mechanism at the well, first I developed a form of OCD. So my hmm. the immediate kind of result was I developed a form of OCD called scrupulosity, which is this obsession with my own uh, moral fiber. So every little sin that I committed every little thing I did wrong, I felt compelled to, you know, pray for hours on end for God to forgive me for, for doing that because I was convinced that he would inflict some kind of 
horrible judgment and punishment upon me. Um, I there was a kind of dual understanding that somehow what was going on was was my fault. Um, and, you know, of course, as I started to understand that what the kids were saying about me was true, that I was, in fact, gay, um, which was kind of the epitome of, of evil um, in the eyes of all of the people who were I trusted implicitly when I was younger, um, I felt the need to compensate in every other area for this kind of mortal sin that I was carrying with me. And so um, I felt um, a great responsibility. Um, and so that was really disruptive. Um, I also began drinking at 12. So I would even drink on my own to really anesthetize those feelings and that anxiety. Um, so that that began. Uh, the, the condition did get worse and worse and worse. Um, and then in high school, I, 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 I started smoking pot, which was a great medicine because it didn't inebriate me like alcohol did. It allowed me to function, but it kind of calmed the anxiety, allowed me to detach a little bit from the intrusive thoughts and all of these compulsions helped me to sleep and even kind of provided this little bit of a uh, kind of a force field um, between my intellectual and rational mind and all of that programming. So I was able to kind of almost intellectualize and rationalize why I had developed OCD and what and and where they had gotten it wrong about my gayness or or I was starting to become like a more liberal intellectual kind of person in the real world. And so I, um, pot really helped but what happens is when people turn to drugs and alcohol to aid in their mental and spiritual development it's you really have to be sober to really process all of that um, all of that stuff so because eventually when it's like that you eventually start using every day and then there are consequences um it starts not working as well as it used to you become addicted um you know marijuana can also have hallucinogenic effects when you use so much of it thc um obviously alcohol inebriates you so you can 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 get into a lot of trouble that way you black out pass out get sick um, but by my senior year, I had gotten into heavier substances as well, dabbling with downers and so on. And my, my mental health was really dovetailing um, because um, maybe perhaps because I was starting to be more sexually active and I was having a lot of difficulty processing that. I mean, look, I say that I was able to intellectualize what was going on and maybe detach a little bit more that pot helped. but. The, the 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 anxiety and and the distress was was extreme um and and in my darkest moments were were sheer hell and they happened often um so it wasn't um it wasn't easy at all and so when i graduated high school and i went to college i went to college for just a semester and at the end of that semester i i dropped out and i said i'm just gonna you know, go find myself, perhaps um, travel. And, you know, a couple, maybe a month later, I went to, to Mardi Gras, New Orleans. Um, when I was 19, I just turned 19 with some friends. And um, I 
had sex with a man for the first time there, penetrative sex, and I um, dabbled in a lot of speed. Actually, I, I did like a whole cocaine binge and the effect when people have comorbidities like anxiety, depression, OCD, and all of these things, if they binge on cocaine, sometimes it can uh, uh, cause a, a psychotic break or, or some kind of manic episode. And that's exactly what happened to me. So three weeks later, I had a complete mental and psychotic break and I required hospitalization. So I had two hospitalizations during that time in 2002. And that was where, you know, I certainly didn't bounce back from that immediately by any stretch of the imagination, but recovery began in my early twenties. And so that's why I might not appear to be so messed up today because I've had a number of years of sobriety and uh, mental health and and trauma therapy and mm-hmm. just living and living experience to to get past it. So prior to the uh, drug fueled um, party gras uh, that resulted in a nervous breakdown and then uh, some sort of uh, hospitalization, did you have any contact with therapy? Uh, did you have any mentorship uh, during your teen years? I did. So when I was thirteen, I went to my first therapist, maybe twelve or thirteen, because my mom was like she knew i had always been devout but when she saw saw what was going on in all of my compulsions she knew that there was an issue i was also coming home from school crying all the time but i didn't want to tell her what the other kids were saying because i you know i didn't want to say hey mom they're calling me gay because i didn't even want to introduce that idea although of course she knew since i was very young that i was different in that way um and so i went to a therapist and i told him i said i you know he asked me about the prayer and i I spoke about it with him and then i actually told him i said i think i might be gay and he said you know do you think you're you look up to men like you and other boys like you 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 see them as heroes that you want to emulate or do you think you're attracted to them and i said no I'm, i'm attracted to them and he said well can i tell your mother and i told him no you know and he did tell her anyway uh, um and so that there began that i didn't continue seeing him i maybe saw him for a couple sessions and then um in high school i did see a couple therapists um but i was smoking pot you know and i was um i was partying um and that was really something that I needed to set aside before I really um, could do the really work. got into that. Yeah, yeah. The, the, I think the 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 biggest the most the biggest help um, for me and what what really saved me was just close friendships with a couple women that in high school um, that were supportive and understanding, um, as well as. Um, yeah, that was mostly it. And my mom was is a very loving and 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 uh, empathetic and compassionate person so her her support regardless of whether or not she always understood or even approved from the beginning at least about this um this about my homosexuality when i when i talked to her about it perhaps when i was finally 17 and she had said something like you know i don't think I support you and I love you. I just don't know if this is God's plan for you. And of course, her, her views evolved over time. Um, but she was supportive, so that was that was helpful. Um, there was still a lot a lot of love in my life. Um, and then, yeah, that's how that was. And the 
being um, bullied or harassed for your effeminacy, did you uh, adapt to that and figure out how mm-hmm. to manage that? And how, how did you manage that? Did you make yourself less effeminate or did you figure out how to play play the Absolutely. bad bros? Yeah. Absolutely. I defeminized myself. I took all the cues um, and it was a radical undertaking. And I, I changed my music choice. I cut my hair. I changed my What were you listening wardrobe. to? Paula Abdul? And then he went to uh, Oh, yeah, here, absolutely. Then... Paula Abdul, Mariah Carey. Um, you know, mostly Paula Abdul, Mariah Carey, probably Janet Jackson. Um, you know, and then I was trying to listen to Nirvana and, you know, all of these, you know, that just made me want to kill myself. And, uh, and, and, you know, I like my wardrobe, even my gait. I, you know, how I walked, I deepened my voice, um, and it became a performance of, of what I knew, uh, what was expected of, of me as a boy. Okay. And I guess we're jumping ahead a little bit, but when you begin to sober up and then talk through your issues, did you go through a, um, explosion of embracing your femininity did you mm-hmm. kind of go back to paula abdul and dance around yeah. in tights about if he loves I me did. Or not? Yeah. i did when i got sober in my early 20s and i started really coming into my own um you know i would uh, go get my nails done and i experimented with makeup and i um yeah i mean i i certainly um, fell back into all the music that I had loved and um, yeah absolutely typically you know that stereotypical feminine um, and feminine stuff and those interests that I yeah absolutely hmm. and I guess today in this age if if you we just took you transplanted you from 2004 to this period of time you'd probably uh, be under the influence of this trans identity or trans ideology. I'm trying to phrase this as a question, but the language doesn't seem to be currency that you were actually a girl or you were just being effeminate. Do you think that, uh, what are your thoughts on that and how you uh, would have identified if identity was as big a deal as it is now? Well, it's really interesting. It's really, I guess I do imagine, you know, here are all of these kids saying, you're a girl, are you a girl or boy, you're a girl, you're a girl. And if I were, you know, to go to a guidance counselor or to chat with someone and they said, well, maybe you are a girl and to kind of think that or be introduced to the idea that, oh, so is this should, oh, so so the solution, which will save me from all of this gripping anxiety and this fear, is to kind of um, adhere to what they need me to be and what they are are demanding that I actually am. Like you know, just to give in and just to say, oh, you're right, you know, bullies, I I am a girl, and to you know uh, start on this this path of of medicalizing myself to to satisfy which of course is the broader kind of um regressive gender uh construct that's you know being reinforced um, by all of these stereotypes um and so i do absolutely think that i would be 
um, or could have been under this way. And I know I'm not alone at that. I mean, obviously, I know that so many gays and lesbians say precisely the same thing. Yeah. Um, that but you, you didn't were, have that to process this effeminacy. Uh, you just experimented and there wasn't the same pressure uh, as there is now to identify as a girl. You're just like, I'm I'm. I'm gay and I want to dress this way and I want to present this way and and you mean so, in my twenties or when I was younger? When when you were allowed to finally do that in your twenties? Oh. In my twenties, so yeah, I thought you were talking about when I was younger. Well, in my twenties, there was yes, there was no, there was never any suggestion that you know perhaps you're a woman or perhaps you identify as another gender besides male. Um, I was a gay man, and that was that was it. Um, I suppose I was, you know, familiar. I, I did meet a couple um, people who I guess would, by modern definitions, call themselves trans. Um, one individual, but um, there, yeah, I was just an effeminate gay man, and I was just kind of playing with with gender and what was expected of me. And it was liberating because it allowed me to reconnect with all of those things that I had kind of stunted and suppressed um, all those years ago. Um, But, you know, that was also, it only lasted so long, it became tiresome. You know, I think as I got older, um, while I still have a variety of interests um, across the spectrum and, and do like to maybe play with that it becomes a much it's because i've realized that so much of that is um an exhausting you know performance that's not really authentic Hmm. i think that a lot of people for me speaking about myself as I've grown on the inside, intellectually, just as a person, you know, I've given more attention to my ideas and my thoughts and how I treat people, um, my relationships, rather than, you know, what kind of sh- color shirt I'm wear- wearing <clears throat> or, you know, what it means for me to be singing along to Mariah Carey in the car. Oh, okay. Yeah. So just stacking all this importance or value on it as a construct, as a gender construct is kind of exhausting after a while. But, but I just, I want um, to hear you speak about when you were just immersed in that in your twenties, like what were you, what was the process of getting connected to that? And what did that avail you of or give you? Um, And and I'm thinking that specifically in the case of young effeminate males who um, need to go through that process, but can Mm. maybe be saved from the medicalization side by right. taking it too seriously. So what was the joy and what, what, what did you learn about yourself and what was the feeling of, of going through that uh, discovery and playfulness? Yeah, absolutely. I don't discredit it. I don't discount it. I don't even, I would never say that it's like not in some way mentally healthy or necessary um, at all. I mean, it really unleashed creativity. Okay. Okay. Cause I had always been really artistic um, ever since I was a kid, I always loved performance. I always loved the arts. And that became very stunted when I felt the need to really defeminize myself and perform according to these stereotypes, um, which some people have no issue, obviously, going by because some men or boys are more traditionally boys and men and masculine. But for me, it wasn't 
um, it, it, it didn't make sense and it wasn't natural. And so it stunted my ability to express my talents, my gifts, even my intellect, um, because there were, um, you know, ideas that were girls' ideas or interests that were girls' interests or, um, uh, uh, things, jokes that only girls thought were funny or magazines that only girls liked. So it reopened this door to everything that I had been, you know, either hiding if I was still indulging in that, or I don't want to say indulging, but if I was still enjoying that or, um, you know, so it, it reopened access to that. So I thought, Oh, I can go, I can get pedicures if I want, you know, I can, I can, you know, go and, and, and play with mascara and do, and it was fun. It was like, it was, it was, um, it was artistic. It was creative and it, it inspired, um, it inspired and, and started that creative energy flowing again. So I think that's really important. Um, I think that's a huge part of it. I've written before I wrote this essay years ago, but that I didn't realize how much my gender expression was contingent upon, I'm sorry, I didn't realize how much my creativity, even my athleticism, um, my ability to just uh, live and excel was contingent upon my freedom to really express myself um, in a gender or a stereotypical way. Um, or how I, what was natural to me. I became so atrophied. Um, I was always a very, I was always a very bright kid. And I, and I did have this kind of, um, uh, I was very athletic as well as very artistic. So, but I became much more afraid to really perform or do anything because of feeling like so many eyes were on me dissecting me and waiting to catch that moment when I slipped. Mm. Um, and, and so I, I really isolated and began to alienate myself from, from things. And what became much more comfortable was for me to be with just a couple friends that I felt safe with, but also alone in my room, you know, eventually just doing drugs. Okay. Um, yeah. Cause I was going to ask, uh, while you're processing all the stuff in your teen years and you're 12 to, uh, your great uh, partying phase. Um, that one outlet for a lot of the anxiety and the processing could have been writing, could have been art, could have been you know physical things. But because now it makes sense that because you had so much pressure to control your gender expression um, to avoid the slander of being effeminate as a male, um, you couldn't have a relationship just with your body. I'm just thinking about like if you're having to control your gait. You know, just walking down the hallway at school, how are you going to actually play volleyball or something if you suddenly your butt cheeks sticks out the wrong way? You know, or you like have a little twist in your back, you know, that you shouldn't have, you know. So you, you have all this dissociation, which just bottles it up and bottles it up and bottles it up. And of course, um, I mean, uh, drugs or gaming or any of these other outlets that would kind of remove you from your body would be the only thing kind of on offer for you in, in a way if you don't have any healthy outlets. Or they're they're all stifled. Yeah, and I, thankfully, I did still write. I have piles of journals, um, and I still did that. I still, you know, drew, and I still. But it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, I didn't exercise that those abilities um, as much as I as I could have by any means. So, um, 
ambition is not necessarily a masculine thing, but I think it does help men to have an ambition to have some sort of drive to do something. I, I can see a, a lot just speaking specifically of men and not cutting women out of the conversation. But after going through um, a stifling uh, series of growing up and then kind of being able to do therapy and start to work on yourself. Like where did your, did your ambition awake, like to want to be or do something in the world? Did, did that come uh, alive in you and in, in your twenties? Did you figure that out? Yes. In a way, I mean, really what, you know, I, so what w the career that I ended up taking the career path was actually hairstyling because, um, I really fell into it. Um, I, I ran into a friend from high school, uh, one day when I was drunk at the local grocery store, I think I had just been kicked out of my house for like the fifth time. Mm -hmm. And I was t maybe 20 and I was 20 and she said, you know, what are you doing with your life? And I said, Oh, I'm, you know, think I, I may have even said I was, I was thinking about going to cosmetology school because at the time I have vague recollections that I was, I, I was always interested in fashion and fashion design. I was always interested in the arts and writing. I wanted to be a screenwriter, writer. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be, you know, I, anything that was creative. And so I thought, well, if university is not for me, um, then maybe that will be, you know, and she said, well, I'm doing a, a two-year apprenticeship at a local hair salon and I'm actually looking for someone to take my place because, you know, irony of irony, she was actually leaving to go do youth ministry full-time. Hmm. And so she said, do you want to, to take my place? And I was like, sure. And she, I, it might've even been the next day that she picked me up and drove me to the salon. And so for the first three months there, I was sweeping hair. She taught me how to do root color touch-ups and blowouts, but I was a mess. I mean, I was getting high every day. I was constantly written up for sometimes not showing up or whatever. And then what happened was during that time is I, I, a young woman came into the salon and I overheard her talking to my boss while she was doing her hair about her recovery. And I... I walked outside while she was smoking a cigarette and I said, I, I'm a drug addict and I need help. And she took me to the 12 step meeting and that was what began my, my sobriety. So after that, I'm getting sober and staying sober and navigating that this new world. And so all of it is, is coming on, on to me and I'm, I'm getting mental health help you know, and and I, I think I had been medicated because obviously post those psychiatric ward stays, of course, they were prescribing me these things, but they don't have much efficacy when you're also, you know, doing downers and pot and mm. other much more illicit substances. And so I and drinking. Um, so anyway, I was stabilizing and getting all of that stuff figured out. And so, yes, then I developed this career and I kind of just kept going with it. And it became a really successful and really busy and essentially kind of booming career between Baltimore in and in a town between Baltimore and D.C. I became a really successful stylist. Hmm. And all the while, I am just getting my life together. I'm getting myself together. I had really dark times and really trying and difficult times. And um, but I, I was I was getting better slowly over time. All the while thinking in my head, I want to go back to school. There's more that I want to do. I, essentially, I kind of really wanted to be a writer, and I always had been. And so um, what that ambition, yes, absolutely, to 
to excel and succeed in my career, but really to support myself so I could just pay my bills and live on my own and pay my rent. But there was always, if you were talking about ambition, maybe what close friends have, have, have commented on about me over the years that I've known since I was a teenager was that there's something in me that always kind of chooses to walk through fires or when there's an issue to get help or to to overcome it rather than to kind of try to skirt around. So somewhere within me, is, as weak or as vulnerable as I can feel at times, there is some kind of endurance or um, perseverance to get better and to keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, I guess, is an ambition, ambitious quality. But But certainly... After I got involved, I met my now husband, and that was when things changed everything for me because I was in my late twenties. I was twenty eight when we met, and we I felt I fell in love with him hard. And we I had always thought marriage is an antiquated institution, and um, you know uh, I, I thought a lot of things um, about about marriage, and um, uh, but. I knew after three months together that I wanted to marry him and he felt the same way. And so meanwhile, this was late 2011 and early 2012 in Maryland, where I lived, the Maryland state legislature had just passed the uh, same sex marriage in, um, in early, I think it was February, uh, 2012, um, with the caveat that the law wouldn't go into effect until January 1st, 2013, which would give conservatives enough time to, Uh, get enough signatures to get it um, on the November ballot to be able to overturn it via referendum. Mm -hmm. So that was the caveat that the conservatives and the legislature argued for, you know, we'll pass this as long as you include this addendum. And so, of course, that happened. And that was when I got involved because I said, I have a hat in the ring. This is what I want. This is what I'm looking to do. And that was when I became, you know, peripherally active in, in in local state activism um, for marriage equality. Okay, here we go. This is it. This is the story because one consistent um, interpretation of the wide-scale uh, top-down implementation of transgender ideology, one uh, we say, why is it happening? Why is it centralized? Why are these huge companies putting this down through law, one interpretation of that is that there was a huge amount of power and resources uh, invested into gay marriage, and it had nowhere else to go. So you're at the, you're at the head of the spear, so to speak, of uh, getting gay marriage on the ballot. You're joining into activism. So this is really interesting to hear from your point of view. What was the activist community like at that time? What was the, you know, the, the way that it was working together, the ideology, or was it just you know, focused on this one issue? What, was there a bunch of other baggage? Yeah. What was the culture? So I was primarily focused on this issue, and it was the, the the dominating issue at the time because this was we're gearing up for the 2012 election. So is Obama going to be reelected, and the Dream Act, and then also of course marriage equality. And there were four major marriage equality issues being voted on at the ballot box that year in four different states. So there was Maine, Maryland, Washington State, and Wisconsin. Maine, Washington, and Maryland were the three states where voters were going to approve same sex marriage or not. 
Wisconsin was the one where they were either going, they were trying to ban same-sex marriage. So they were either going to vote against it or not. So there was an up, more uphill battle for Wisconsin because traditionally it's harder to vote against, to get support against something than to get for it. Um, but we ended up winning all four of those measures that year. But anyway, I was involved really just in, in marriage. I, um, there was a group called Marylanders for Marriage Equality, and I went to these group meetings, and they talked about tactics or about like what the what the um, you know what it was, and it was really just talking to people. And my the benefit I had was that I had hundreds of clients, so from all walks of life, and so I wasn't necessarily sitting there proselytizing to them. In fact, it really didn't have anything to do with that at all. It was just they know they knew me for years. So when I just talked to them about my life and about, oh, I've met this man and et cetera, they were happy for me and excited. And then, you know, when I talk about, oh, yeah, there's this measure. And of course, they were aware of it because they're in Maryland and they know that this it's getting a lot of news and press coverage. And so they would say to me, I'm going to vote. Yes. You know, I'm going to vote. Yes. Um, and so that was really what a lot of my activism was, was just to talking to people one on one. And then. You know, of course, on election day, I electioneered at the ballot box um, and, you know, talking to voters to, to, to vote yes on this measure. Um, and then that night we it was approved. So that was a transformative experience. And that's where everything changed. And if you're talking about ambition, that's where it was ignited, because I drove home that night thinking, you know, I never want to lose this feeling. I want to keep chasing this feeling of what it means to fight for marginalized people and to. Um, and it was also such a validating and transformative experience because I was so convinced we were going to lose. Like, of course, we're going to lose. Of course, I'm going to be not that I was going to be unhappy forever. But of course, this this thing that I want is going to be withheld from me because, you know, of course, I, I I'm in, in somewhere in my mind, I knew I created a bigger existential issue out of it because I had a lot of issues still with with my religious upbringing and reconciling all of that. So I thought, God, you know, is going to see fit that this isn't going to happen, et cetera, whatever it was. And so that approved approval at the ballot box was um, was an entirely transformative experience. Like, oh, maybe I have a shot at being happy. Maybe I have a shot at a normal life just like anybody else. I felt welcomed into the human fold. I felt like I could walk taller, look people in the eye. Um, I felt really validated and maybe that might not say great things about how, um, about how much my well-being or my, val you know, my, my self-value depended upon the validation of others. But on the other side of that, well, I'm a man who's gay and homosexual and I fell in love with a man. I'm sexually attracted to men. And so if we're going to have marriage in society, then same-sex people should also have the ability to at least, you know, have access to that institution um, because this is the way this is, it's a, you know, this is what they are and who they are. They are same-sex attracted people who fall in love with, with other people of the same sex. So um, everybody wants love and to find love and communion and partnership. Well, a lot of people do. Um, and I think that, um, I think that, you know, I certainly was one of them. So that was transformative for me. And it was then that night that I knew I'm going to, I'm going to go back to school and I'm going to be a writer, be a journalist, you know, be an activist, whatever it was. And when you're asking about what the, what the, uh, in terms of, you know, trans rights, 
and, and gay rights and what was the uh, more popular at the time. Right after that, I was like, okay, now it's time for trans rights. I, right after that, I remember a client saying to me, so now what? You know, she was like, this is so great. So now what? Now, also, it wasn't, you know, Obergefell, the Obergefell decision hadn't been made until that wouldn't be made until a few that? years later, which is the the decision at the Supreme Court that legalized marriage in every state. This was okay. still a state by state issue. Yeah. So <clears throat> that was there were still bans in so many um, states. Um, and so that was a really pivotal and landmark decision, obviously. But right after this decision, I remember my friend, my client saying to me, so what now what? And I went like this. Like T, like now the T, you know, now trans people. And it was right after that election that I, uh, there was a, uh, the following, because that was in November, obviously, that it passed. Marriage was legalized January 1st. And then in those, in that, the 2013 legislative session in in Maryland, in Annapolis, was a trans rights legislation bill that was going through. It was an anti-discrimination bill um, to advocate for trans people, um, you know, against uh, discrimination in employment, housing, et cetera. So I, you know, went to a rally and I sat down with senators and talked to them about, um, state senators about the importance of passing this legislation. The legislation failed that year. I think it ended up passing the next year. Um, so I became, um, you know, really excited to, to just continue in this work in whatever way the LGBT community, you know, whatever their initiatives were, and, um, and what was on their legislative agenda. The um, so this first uh, foray into trans rights is about anti discrimination. So the, this is inserting into law um, the concept of gender identity. Is that where it's? Uh, you know, I'm not sure. So that's a good question, and I don't really know if I don't really remember the wording of the bill. I don't know if they were like this is what defines a trans person. Obviously, there was so much confusion over that. I remember talking to a senator and sitting down with him and he's like well what if a what man just wants to come in and wear put a wig on and then he's like oh and or, or something like that and i and i kind of was like well you might be thinking of a maybe a, your understanding of a transgestite transvestite as opposed to like a transgender person who at the time my understanding was was a transsexual person who would you know desire to be or perform or, or present themselves and be identified as the opposite sex and took cross-sex hormones to for that to happen um and whatever kind of gender reassignment surgeries that was my understanding of what trans was and i guess a lot of people's and that might be well anyway so that was just how what i understand trans to be so Obviously, over the years that have passed since then, the language has changed. The trans umbrella has really grown. So, you know, when I did move on into activism or some activist work in New York after I went to Columbia and moved up to Columbia to to be to finish, you know, do my my uh, academic career there, I started to hear this kind of new like, oh, you don't have to take. Um, you don't have to take hormones to be trans. In fact, you don't have to do anything to be trans. There's no requirement. And I thought to myself, I mean, I was so perplexed by it because I thought, well, well, then who isn't trans? Like, I didn't understand at all. So in terms of being enshrined into law, this kind of idea of replacing sex with gender, I don't know how that came into place in this legislative issue back in 2013. Um, All I knew at the time was, a trans person shouldn't be fired for simply identifying as transgender um, or denied housing. 
Um, so that was where I was coming from with it. Okay. How was Columbia for you? Well, you know, so it was, um, a nightmare. Um, you know, it really was, uh, Wait, did you have your own mattress girl incident? I didn't. I was post, 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 uh, but look, I can't, I, well, I started at Columbia the, the week of Trump's inauguration. Oh, so this was mattress girl was, was oh, old, kids old, play, child old play. News, yeah, yeah, yeah okay. old news. This was, this was, um, every issue under the sun on steroids and, um, and you're but, an older student and I'm, I'm a, an older student. So, um, I was thrilled because I was devastated by Trump's win. You know, I was, um, you know, so much of what the changes and the the progress that we had made as gays and lesbians, you know, really kind of coincided with with Obama's presidency and and coincided with also, excuse me, my own public, I mean, my own private and personal love story with my husband. Mm-hmm. So, which sounds maybe trite, but it's just how it was. I mean, we met and then right after that, this all kind of happens. And so it really just paralleled all of that. So it felt, it was very exciting and it meant a lot. And it was like, wow, you know, the universe is reinforcing, you know, what's going on here. And so when, you know, Trump, you know, came on the scene and then, you know, he nominates Pence for his vice presidency. He was a villain in, you know, in the LGBT activist, you know, community or who anyone who was in the know, I thought, oh, this is all going to be ripped away. So much of my, you know, validation and also my hope for the future was, was in jeopardy, put in jeopardy. And, um, so, uh, after he was elected, you know, I had been accepted to Columbia. So my husband and I were pre- planning to move, we're preparing to move to New York the following month. So I thought, well, thank God that I'm going to this uber progressive school where I can be in this liberal bubble with like-minded people and exist peacefully and hashtag resist with other folks and have this kumbaya moment in this increasingly um, destabilized and scary world. And that was really my saving grace. And so when, you know, I started at Columbia and I said it was a nightmare and it was um, because it was a nightmare for my mental health. I, I, it really re-triggered all the old symptoms that we, that really um, a lot of the old symptoms that I had when, it, when I was younger. Is this a, was this triggered by being back in uh, enmeshed in that age group or in just the high stress environment of school? Well, what was the trigger for that? So it was the, so what I've written about and what I'm writing about was how it re-triggered all of these old OCD compulsions because what I quickly came to see was that I was once again a heretic. And so I, was um not the right kind of queer um i was reduced to my identity which was a cis white guy and you know i can be very be you know genuflect and sometimes kind of present a more effeminate or more gay but it doesn't necessarily not everybody necessarily immediately reads me as gay so if i wanted to kind of participate in class 
I or have any kind of say or insight, I was, you know, first and foremost, like, okay, here, you know, I started to understand that there were a lot of folks that were operating, like, before I even spoke, here is a cis white male about to speak, okay, go. And so no matter what I said, even if it was completely in line with a lot of what they were saying, that they would almost interpret as if I had said precisely the exact opposite. And you're, you're this, in upside down bully land now. You went from right. like getting, getting called a, and you know, right. when you're 13 to now being called a cis white hetero patriarchal right. sucker. I mean, I've said it. I, that's exactly right. I've said it a million times. I said, you know, they called me cis in precisely the same cadence that the seventh graders called me. There was no difference. It even has that kind of hissing quality to it. Cis, yeah. cis. And I, I didn't even know what it meant at the time. In fact, which is a sh- shocker, perhaps, but it was a new word. It was a new it, non-binary was a new word in 2017, according to like, I mean, the broader conversation and me. I mean, I was not necessarily, like I said, completely enmeshed in LGBT activism or even in queer counterculture um and there was so much about the history that i had i was completely naive about but that was why i went to columbia because i was like i don't want to be this activist who just writes angry diatribes on facebook i want to know what the fuck i'm talking about so i'm going to go to columbia and learn and learn and learn and become this really effective activist mm-hmm. and guess what i did learn i got a great education there a lot of it was on my own time and, and the research that a lot of these things that I was learning or whatever prompted. But what I started to realize was that, okay, so now I'm learning about queer history, about, about theory, about all of these things and developing my own critical thinking, just kind of looking at the holes in a lot of theories or kind of understanding, well, that doesn't quite make sense or, or, and, and of course, just this culture of complete, shame and purity policing all of that together was um making me realize that oh there's a big issue here and i'm telling you benjamin i didn't even know necessarily all of the debates that had been going on for years about free speech and campus censorship and what's going on on universities that really began in the eighties and the Mm nineties. And I, I was unaware. I was just aware that there is this institution that accepted me to this university Mm -hmm. and it's a dream come true. And I can't believe my luck and I'm going to go there and I'm going to become a writer and a journalist and it's going to thrill me and it's going to be amazing. You know, kind of one of these birthplaces of, radical liberation and queer activism (laughs) and so i had a lot of catching up to do because simultaneously while i'm you know learning or hearing people spout very reductive maxims that i thought well that doesn't seem right and then kind of on my own doing the homework to realize where those things come from of course then it opened up this great chasm of all of this backstory and history that i really needed to understand like oh that's how we got here and i actually don't agree with that or oh i think that's a little bit or or oh there's there is another way to look at this and 
maybe I don't agree with the other way to look at it, but I think it's vital that you might know that there actually is another way to look at this. What I quickly came to see was, or what I began to see was that a lot of students in humanities departments or wherever were a lot of where I spent my time was that we weren't learning so much history. We were learning the theoretical lenses through which to view different histories. So people were, they were putting the cart before the horse. So they're not saying, okay, let's examine. It, it was almost like, and you know, theory really subverts and queers and makes a lot of it look like you're looking through, uh, you know, through a funhouse mirror. Mm-hmm. And it was distorting all of these ideas about it. So people weren't being educated first and foremost with, okay, what is the history or what is the understanding? What is the common reality or, or what exists? They're learning about it through the lens of, you know, different theorists um, and different ideologies. And it, it made people I saw pretty dumb because it was like, you know, you, you're spouting off what you might think is profound but you don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah. And I was one of them. I was absolutely one of them. And so I had to, I just wanted to know, I guess I was older and I just thought I'm here to learn. And so I wanted to know what I was talking about. And I just started to really see the futility of a lot of the things, or at least the kind of inchoate, of a lot of the ideas that I couldn't have just put forth as, um, as truth or these self-evident. Yeah. 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 Self-evident. And, um, so when I talked about the purity policing and this, I saw what it did was again with, in terms of mental health issues, having gone from this religious community where my family's excommunicated and we're separated and there's this whole, and then finding a community in L- the LGBT community and being accepted into this fold and feeling like I'm one of. And then to see how suddenly I'm a heretic again. Not because I was professing any kind of right wing ideology, but because of my simple identity, because I was cisgender. Okay, was it really that shallow? Was it really that reductive that they would see everything through that identity politic? It, it felt that way. It seemed that way to me. It seemed that way to me. Of course, this isn't every student there by any stretch of the imagination. This is the, the kind of the but ruling. it really seemed that way to me. These kids, they're very, uh, what, you know, and in retrospect, too, I was expecting a lot of them because here I am in my 30s. And they're really young, so they're very bright, but I'm forgetting or forgot that they are so young. A lot of them are very, very privileged, have never seen a real hardship in their life or their lives. So I'm expecting a lot. And that was a big mistake of mine. You know, but for an example, you know, when I thought, okay, well, I'm going to go into Columbia and I'm going to get involved in LGBT activism on campus 
And of course, with everything that's going on politically, I'm sure they're going to be busy as hell and we're going to be doing, I don't know, protests or writing letters. I, I don't know what it was going to be. And I went to the first group and it was like everybody was there. There were toys and games and they were talking about, you know, how their activities are like slumber parties where they're decorating posters for their room. And so I thought, okay, if this is the next cohort of radicals, then we're in big trouble. And so that was where I started. So it, it was a, it was the, yes, you say like, it was a really that dumb, this reductive like identity politics where it really, it was also profound, profound immaturity and just that coddling mm -hmm. and this complete aversion to anything that, or almost that fear of being confronting any kind of idea that challenged what the ruling orthodoxy was. And it was just, it was just a new conformity to accept um to accept whoever was screaming loudest and who was really the most provocative in what they were saying and of course mm -hmm. that became more and more provocative and it was you know barry weiss wrote like you know twitter might not be on the masthead the new york times but it's its editor it was like i had, i call columbia twitter university because there was no difference between what i was seeing on twitter feeds and what i was seeing occur on campus it was an extension of that and they were essentially what i found really a lot of one in the same and i don't want to degrade because so many of my professors were incredible and thankfully that's who i really connected with <laughs> people who were willing and were refreshed by my you know ways just to kind of say well i don't know if that makes sense what about this and they were like that's an interesting thought why don't you follow that thread you know um <laughs> but um yeah yeah, I, I, our uh, our stories are very similar now. Uh, going from the you know, heavily religious upbringing to you know being a liberal twenty artist type, and then going back to college and stepping on campus, like oh, I'm going to have to lower my standards, and watching your standards have to get lower and lower. Like wow, could you guys really? Are you really going to make my standards go lower than that? And I mean, Evergreen. I mean, Evergreen's a doesn't compare intellectually to Columbia on a number of different metrics, but I think that they outshone Columbia on the social justice extremism. They, they really uh, beat everybody to the punch uh, for a number of different reasons, but it's really interesting just to hear somebody else go through the same kind of experience. You know, you're walking on campus, you're like expecting to have like intellectual discourse and, you know, I'm going to pursue the elite ideas. And then you, you find basically a kind of a crib in a swing set and then a bunch of people picking their noses and you're like, wait, what? what? Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. And well, first of all, you and I are not alone because of the, the messages that I get from people since I've started writing about that stuff. Um, including from Columbia, um, currently, but, um, I also am not, you know, there, you know, I'm fallible and I'm going to make mistakes or, or have misunderstandings. My, my, uh, I certainly, and there was a temptation, believe me, to feel so excommunicated from this tribe to want to fall in with another one. 
and that's the danger. To, not well. I think it's a danger. Did you like danger. find yourself? Your, did your husband catch you uh, watching Richard Spencer videos at two <laughs> two a.m.? No. no, not at all. No, but you know, but but uh, no, but who did really help? Well, one what was a huge game changer for me was Megan Dom. I did connect with her during my time there, um, just because I like tracked her down. At the, I knew she was doing this this talk. And I had read her Nuance, a love story essay on Medium, and actually another student who was a Hare Christian cult survivor was the one who passed that along to me. And he was studying cultic studies at Columbia. Um, he was an older student as well. And he said, tell me what you think about this. And and it, it was just such an honest and, and essay. And I thought, oh, I'm not alone. I'm not crazy because you think you're crazy. Because you, you know, well, for me, I was so, I felt bad. I felt bad, 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 bad. Like I had, when I left the community, I felt like, because here's the thing with OCD and scrupulosity, you have all these thoughts, critical, normal, reasonable thoughts. For me, when I was younger, it was starting to have sexual feelings about boys. It was starting to question church orthodoxy or, or religion. And to stave off or to shut down that creative or intellectual process, I prayed. God, forgive me. God, forgive me. And those thoughts would, would stop all the channels in my brain that it was too dangerous to go down. It was like, I stopped. And then I started to be able to go down. And when I found this acceptance in this, in the, in the, the gay and the queer community and LGBT activism, and also the broader media narrative that was starting to come around or really kind of jive with it. And it was like, I was able to kind of go down some of those places. And so when I went to Columbia and here I am just wanting to learn and I'm being confronted with all of these ideas and histories, I started to see, I learned very quickly, quickly what the accepted dogma was just by all of my experience, knowing how to conform. It, it was, I was so in tune with that that you know operating that manner of operating in in society and in groups and communities so you pick up the cues and then the fear that came when i started thinking well actually that's not right or that's what you're saying that you're kind of saying is liberating and for let's say black people or is anti-racist I think it's actually a little bit racist towards black people, but I'm like, God, forgive me. Like it was just this oh, okay. These OCD because I was like, don't go down there. Don't because, you know, and so I became really afraid. I felt really afraid and alone. And so it was this kind of extreme awareness of the coddling and the profound emotional immaturity and this, unwillingness to even consider opinions that were coming from identities who were the oppressors, mm -hmm. you know, um, I found that very alienating and concerning and frightening. Um, and so it just re-triggered all of this anxiety in me 
my OCD re-sparked, but it wasn't necessarily in the same way as before because, um, but it was the same, it was the same kind of obsessed obsessions and compulsions and behaviors. Um, so yeah. when you, when you started to notice that you were um, being kind of uh, triggered and you're older now, you've already gone through this. So you have a little bit more perspective. You have a little bit more self-consciousness. You're probably going to uh, be aware that you're going to start to cope uh, either consciously or subconsciously. And there's all these different avenues for coping. How did you end up catching yourself or uh, did bad habits go back and did you have to stop yourself? How did you survive that first rush of anxiety and then stabilize yourself in this another cult environment? So I started smoking again. Um, cigarettes. I stayed sober. You know, I, I started going to 12 step meetings in New York. Thankfully I stayed connected in that way. Um, I got a therapist and I started talking to him about some of these issues that I was encountering on, on the campus and kind of working out these ideas. Um, and I, uh, now, meanwhile, there were times at Columbia that were extremely empowering and exciting and enlightening when I would meet or connect with a professor that I was able to just talk freely with, or when I was so into what I was learning, or when I did come across a couple students that I felt like I could exchange these ideas with. So it wasn't like it was a nightmare. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was extremely exhilarating. I felt profoundly, profoundly blessed and privileged to have that opportunity. I couldn't, I, I operated, I, I still can't believe my luck that I was able to, to kind of go from where I was to be able to get an opportunity to study at such a great institution and kind of become a writer and, and et cetera, et cetera. So um, there was all of that at the same time, but so it was therapy and, but it got worse and worse. And as I, started to kind of speak out or talk back just a little bit, the repercussions started happening and it wasn't so severe. It was just really, it really triggered me for lack of a better word. Um, I remember there was tragically, cause there are a number of suicides that happen at Columbia typically each year and a student had died and there was a blog post about it for Columbia's blog and they said, you know, so-and-so has died, has passed away. It said was the title. And then below it, it said editor's note, this article contains mentions of death. And then it went on. And I thought to myself, okay, like, first of all, you have the idea of death in the title and on the link on Twitter, and I'm sorry, but if you cannot cope with reading about the very topic of death, which is a fundamental part of our existence, then we are fucked. And I tweeted like, and I wasn't a big tweeter at all, but I said, not sure why they found the need to give a trigger warning when the title says da 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 and they responded like you're a piece of shit the student's dead um Wait, they is in the the editors of the columbia blog uh, yeah uh, yeah the, no, the actual the official 
Columbia blog called you a bigot? It or was, was it his students? I think it was the person who wrote for the, wrote the article for the blog. So it was the person okay. who worked on the blog, the kid. He since he deleted the tweet. Um, but he wrote, you're a piece of shit. Someone's died. Does this feel good? Are you glad? Like, does this, you know? And I wanted to jump off the roof of my building. I actually did get so dark and so down that night that I was suicidal um, because it was such a fearful experience. I became, you know, it, it just was so alarming. And I, I know that sounds really, I mean, I wouldn't have that now. Obviously I'm getting lambasted by a lot of people on Twitter now, but it was like a, to have someone accuse me on a public forum of being a bad person that doesn't care that someone died and who knows who from school could see it. Was I going to be known as this kid on camera that doesn't give a flying fuck if people are dead made me like really, really afraid because I thought I'm going to be excommunicated. I'm going to get kicked out of school. I'm going to lose. I've just spent, I've already spent 60 grand on this education and I'm not even done racking up the bills yet. And I'm not going to have a degree to show for it. I did. I became really, really paranoid and afraid because I didn't want to hurt anyone. And I also didn't want people to think I was bad. That I was one of the bad guys. And um, so that was like a first kind of or earlier experience of just, being really um, kind of just set off. And if, I mean, it subsided. I talked about it. I did. But I remember that night, you know, not really thinking I was going to kill myself, but imagining how easy it would be and what a relief it might be to do that. Um, and I actually started to talk about, so I, with my therapist, as I'm feeling more and more like a heretic and it's triggering all of this, this, these old, old behaviors and mental illness stuff. I kept an open dialogue with my therapist and I said, I don't think I'm going to jump in front of a subway, but sometimes I imagine it. So he's like, okay, well now he's like, why don't you wait at the top of the stairs rather than on the platform? you know, just in case. So I started having to do that. Like, it was like, hmm. I was, you know, just really trying to, uh, I was, you know, I was suffering and I was excelling. Of course there was the stress too, but I mean, my grades were through the roof. I, I crushed it and I was getting professional opportunities because again, that ambition was there. I thought, well, and Benjamin, I thought I'm spending all this money. I didn't come back to school to be a writer, to fail or to be, uh, come back to be an activist, to fail, or to, like, everything was, I'm not like, oh, maybe I'll just go to horticulture, or like, you know, you know, be, uh, like, it was like, I left a successful career and moved up here because I wanted to be effective and to do something different with my life and, and, and make a new living. So, you know, I, there was the pressure of that as well, of, of managing all of these things that were going on, where I was doing a lot of, really close confrontation of my past things that I had merely what I realized at the time. And now in retrospect had just brushed the surface off of, you know, of in terms of recovering from that and really getting to the root of what it was like to grow up in that community and leave it and how that affected my identity or my self understanding and my value of myself. And, um, 
and and also my need to please and conform and the fear of being uh, exiled mm-hmm. and seen as bad. What it led to was I ended up doing uh, trauma therapy and years ago, um, and that was a game changer. It was the summer between my, let's say, junior and senior year. So the summer before my last year at Columbia, I had quite a difficult summer. My anxiety was getting much and much worse. And uh, an old friend who was a social worker, I had known her for years and years. And when I met her and she saw the best that I was, you know, in my early 20s, I met her when I was like 21. She said, I think that EMDR therapy could be really good for you, which is a form of trauma therapy, um, eye rapid motor desensitization mm-hmm. movement, something like that. And she said, it's been proven really effective. So at that time, as it was getting worse, I said, well, now I think I really need to do something about that. And so for my last year at Columbia, I w- I did that therapy once a week. Um, and that probably got me through and it eventually helped me to realize that the culture that I was confronting or encountering there had re-triggered a lot of these old feelings. And so I needed to go back to the cult of my childhood and really look at all of those things and examine in this space while doing these sensory things what the narrative was that had built up in my head that I had built up in my head and what it was. And one of those moments, which might not seem profound to you or anybody watching, but I remember saying to the therapist who was so wonderful and so brilliant, she we're sitting there and I had these tappers in my hand because there's these like, there are these tappers that tap, they alternate tapping. And the kind of theory behind it is that it, and I might be getting this completely wrong, but a lot of times when we process trauma or talk about different things, a part of our brain kind of shuts down because we can't process it. It's like a protective measure. And by doing either eye movement things or these tapping, it kind of stimulates that part of the brain to get it flowing so we can really whatever Mm -hmm. and i remember saying to her you know god never has never never said i was has ever told me i'm bad you know i have never heard from god or whatever it is that i'm bad ever it has only ever been people ever They have all, people have always insisted that for some reason I am bad. And I don't know why, but that was a moment where I just thought, you know, there, there were so many dogmas that I had that, that were, dictating so much of my life and the way that I, I conceived myself, my own morality, my own place in the world, how valuable I was and how deserving I was of respect or dignity. Um, and, but they didn't come from a divinity or 
they're extremely fallible and they're based on what other people have said and thought of. These humans, many of them who suck, you know what I mean? Many of them who are assholes or, or just essentially pieces of shit who, or, or dumb or really unintelligent or maybe they're brilliant, but they're people. And, you know, why am I hand, why am I lifting them up to the level of God? You know, why am I equating when someone says you're bad, you're bad? It's some kind of divine being saying you're bad, you're bad. And what's on the other end of that is, is just this persecution and this punishment and this, this, um, this horrible, horrible consequences. Um, and so that really was a pivotal moment for me. You know, I think of Camille Paglia who talks about like just fuck dogma you know, just challenge dogma. Um, and so what my adult life has been since then has been examining where that, where that is and where that occurs and, and, and really mapping and looking back where that's done a lot of damage and how vulnerable I was to, to that, but not just me, Okay, by any stretch of the imagination, I want to really make this point clear is that when I went to Columbia, it wasn't like, oh, poor me, this is white guy that's really suffering because I feel rejected. I saw everyone suffering like these different anxieties and this kind of almost uh, different forms of scrupulosity that I saw in every in people in every race, color, creed, sexual identity, orientation, whatever it was. No one was winning and I saw so many people suffering. And so I just felt really badly for people who I knew were, you know, really having a hard time with this fear of I'm going to get called out or, or, or I can't, you know, and, and so many people were like, Oh, I can't sleep or oh, I'm depressed or this or that. And I'm like, you know, it's because, you're probably alone in bed at night because I know what this is like where you're thinking about all of the bad thought, like all of the things that you actually think. And when you're left alone and you're scared, it's scary because you're like, what does this mean about me? What does this mean about my soul and my future? And so you, it's, it's profoundly, um, profoundly destabilizing. Mm -hmm. Dangling over the abyss, like a spider on a thread. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I picked up on is this, uh, you, you've spoken about a, a life filled with, um, some pretty intense negative experiences and yet you haven't killed yourself, right? There's something that even though you, you've had thoughts, you've said that, you, you know, this, some, some kid calling you out on Twitter even triggered these thoughts. Um, mm -hmm. So paired with that, there's something that's keeping you alive. There's something that, that's supporting you somewhere. And, and it sounds like you were through this 
through this process of being reintroduced to this dogma and, and uh, purity um, kind of consciousness, you had to connect to, to that floor in, in a way. And also a profound, um, not sympathy, but sensitivity to what other people think of you. Like there's a profound sensitivity to that. And those things were in conflict. Um, it sounds like there were some tensions there. It sounds like, did you break new ground? Did you kind of found, find your grounding uh, through through this process and you know like wh whether that's a belief or an awareness or something like that that allows you to question the dogma like, like you can't just you can't push against a truck without something to stand on right like if the yeah. truck's barreling towards you even if you could stop it you still have to have leverage on on some something to stand on so where are you at on that well it's a good question I, it's a complicated question i think that um, I think a lot of what, you know, I, it's still, a de, it's a developing story. I, I'm writing a lot about it now. Um, but what a lot of it I think was and how I did get to the place where I am and what kind of grounds me is almost in a way, a kind of exposure therapy, um, is what really saved me a lot because, when you the more you try to reach for different solutions whether it be pot or drugs or alcohol or or prayer compulsive obsessive compare or bulimia or anorexia or any other other compulsions and behaviors that are done to exhibit or you know kind of mimic like you have some control over things mm. um uh, and that soothe the anxieties or the thoughts um, when you s you have to sit with them ultimately you have to sit with them and sit in that anxiety and that fear and that's really the only way you have to go through it because if you're constantly doing an avoidance game you're never, it's always going to be there. It's always going to be in the shadows until you shine a light upon it and say, what am I thinking? What is scaring me so much about my thoughts right now or about an opinion that I feel forming? What is so frightening about it? And what's so bad about it? And like to look at it and just to say, oh, okay. And not like, oh, and this is what I believe now. It's like, oh, this opens up 17 other questions and other doors on this topic or issue or whether it be political or anything spiritual, whatever it is. And so sitting with that um, and by, by, by keeping all those doors closed, it's just such a creative and intellectually stifling. It just halts growth. And so, Honestly, I'll, and I'll tell you what grounded me really was, and I talked, I told this to Wesley Yang the other night. I was, because I ended up going into an MFA program after I left Columbia. I lasted for a semester and I dropped out after the semester because it was just, it was just as bad, if not worse, as, than Columbia. And I knew that it's everybody who could put up with Columbia for four years and wanted more. <laughs> right, right. And so, so I left and I remember walking down the street. Um, near my house, maybe a week after I had left it. And it was a kind of a dramatic 
leaving too because I had written something on my Substack that got passed around the department because it was problematic and there was this whole thing. And so, um, so, but I, I was walking down the street and I remember thinking, I don't know what the topic was in my brain. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what I was thinking about. It might've been, you know, something related to all of these conversations we're having about gender and gender identity and all of the logical fallacies or whatever. And, um, and I thought, and I, I kind of like, kind of just found myself maybe not physically doing that, but just kind of almost like stopping the thought, like, or at least shuddering at this, this, thought that I was having, which was likely just, um, reality <laughs> that I was, you know, thinking about when it came to, you know, biological sex and different things that, that topic. And I realized I can think what I, it was academia that was crushing and closing my mind, that world. And I thought, Oh, it's not, that I can now just say anything I want or write anything I want. It's that I can think anything I want. And that was when I realized that I've been that this, I was in an in an elite academic institutions and I'm, my thought was stifled and I was shielding my brain from even just contemplating an idea. And that was when I realized so, so my grounding now is to be, you know, you know, in my own, you know, outside of academia one. And, you know, I guess it's just a shame because there are so many spaces where institutions, um, that are profoundly ideological now. And I just think that with dogma and ideology comes all of what we're talking about, which is thought suppression, censorship, purity policing, groupthink. Sleepless and nights. Sleep, sleepless nights, depression, suicide, suicidality, like suicidal ideation, um, all of those things. And hopelessness, dread, um, fear, shame, so much shame. Don't forget stupidity. Stupidity. And so there, I guess that's maybe what the sad thing is, is that where's an institution or where's a place where there are, you know, you know, where there is, people free to say or think for themselves. And, you know, interestingly, as much as I've even written how much Twitter sucks and have said it and how I think that it's, you know, really, really hurting people and doing crazy shit with social media and stuff like that. What was a big saving grace for me was when I did kind of start looking around and, you know, I, I saw, you know, John McWhorter and Wesley Yang, and then I, you know, I saw what you were doing, or and then you know, reading Megan Dom and looking at different people who I thought, oh, okay, I'm not crazy. You know, meanwhile, interestingly, John McWhorter was 
on Columbia campus. I never got to take his, any of his courses, but you know, he's in the same institution as me. And who knows what he would think? He might be like, this kid is crazy or that's not how it is. I mean, I don't think that he would necessarily disagree with a lot of the things that I'm saying. Um, but he might think, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Um, well, you can always do an article about him. He, he does interviews, you know. He does. He does do interviews, yeah. So I don't know. So, um, yeah, right? He's a busy guy. But that was a huge help for me um and i i just thought um so it did help me a lot and then kind of you know finding different writers and thinkers um who were kind of talking back um against this stuff mm-hmm. what is your um media footprint and how can people connect with it so thank you for asking that um i do have a substack that i don't contribute to a lot, but I might start more. Um, it's just Ben Appel's newsletter. I think it's Ben Appel at Substack or whatever. Um, ben is my, my website. And then I'm Ben Appel on Twitter. So you can certainly find me there. That's a huge help because if you follow me there, then if I ever write anything, which I will, and I am, I'm going to post about it. Um, I spoke with Wesley Yang the other night on his call in show, which was great. Um, so you can find my interview on through call in with him. Um, I'm going to be speaking to some other people soon and my book, which is tentatively titled, um, which is called Cis white gay, um, which is a memoir, an uncensored memoir is forthcoming. So I am. Why not Cizilla? Cizilla. <laughs> 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 we can talk about that with my editor. I don't know, but, uh, that's forthcoming. So I am, that should be out next year. I'm under contract with post Hill press. Oh, fun. Um, yeah. So gonna so be, um, this is the middle going to have pictures of you in bathing suits doing this, <laughs> this white gay thing. Isn't that what you guys do? <laughs> Singing and bathing suits and stuff like that. No. Yes. My, is my conception of the gay community antiquated? And, and, no, I know. Yeah. Probably not. Probably not. Um, but it's maybe with me. Uh, yeah, that's not. Um, do you have a dog? Do, do you have a pet? Are you a pet owner? You so what's I, that in your identity? I, um, my cat just passed away about three weeks ago. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Thank you. It was tough. Um, I had him for about 14 years and it was really, really hard. Yeah, for sure. Um, and anybody who's a pet lover or owner knows how painful that is. Um, and it was, it's been tough. Um, but yeah, so I don't have any, um, animals now. I miss that, but I think it's just too soon. So. It'll, one will find you. I think so. Yeah. That's how it worked the first time. You know, I was walking to a restaurant with my ex, actually a friend in Baltimore and this little cat, like the size of a rat. We actually did think it was a rat. We just screamed because, you know, that's what gave him. We do jump and scream and we screamed and uh, it turned out to be this little tiny orange kitten that was trying to play and we, and I took him home. So he did find me. Well, Ben, thank you so much for agreeing to come on and uh, being so open with me about your uh, very personal uh, life and hardships. And uh, I 
I look forward to your uh, your processes being made public as you continue to write. So welcome to the world of intellectual discourse. <laughs> We're happy to have you. Thanks, Benjamin. I really appreciate it. It was really great to meet you, and I definitely appreciate the opportunity. It's It's been fun, I think. I mean, it's definitely been interesting, and I've enjoyed it, for sure. Yeah. Excellent. I'm going to stop the recording.